This is a Vantage House production. Hi folks, welcome to Season 6. I'm really happy to be back. I'm your host Jalen, today is November 4th, and if it's Friday, then this is The Delph. There's been a lot of voting happening these past couple of weeks. This week we saw an election in Israel where former Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu looks to be on track to reclaim his old post. Last week we had a special episode that explored the recent presidential election in Brazil. That campaign saw former President Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva, or just Lula for short, overtake incumbent President Jair Bolsonaro. President Bolsonaro was often called the Trump of the tropics. Okay, follow me here. The election took place on a Sunday, and the results were released that same night in what would typically be a run-of-the-mill process of congratulations to the winner. Bolsonaro never conceded. In fact, this guy didn't say anything for two days. He finally gave a short speech, and then a staff member announced they began the transition process. But what was behind this delay? Look, losing sucks, and it's, it's not an easy thing to overcome. I cannot even imagine this feeling when you're president. But when you're salty about it, in the States we call this person a sore loser. But there may have actually been more to it. Here's a clip from Rachel Maddow. Even as President Biden was calling the new president-elect, the newspapers in Brazil today carried a statement from Trump advisor Steve Bannon saying there's no possibility that the election result is correct, that Bolsonaro should start a, a months-long ballot-by-ballot audit of the results, and that whatever he does, he definitely shouldn't leave office. He should stay in office despite the election results. In a live stream last night responding to the election results in Brazil, Steve Bannon said it more bluntly. He said Bolsonaro, quote, can't concede. Can't concede. Why not? Why can't he concede? And why do you care, Steve Bannon? I mean, this is the part that's about us. That's about us and our country and our election next week. Because why do you think it is? that this top White House advisor to former President Donald Trump, why do you think it is that he's telling this guy in Brazil, this Trump-like, far-right, buffoonish, unpopular Brazilian president who's just been voted out of office, why is Steve Bannon telling him that he shouldn't admit to the election results? He shouldn't admit that he's been voted out. He cannot concede. Why do you think Bannon is doing that? Do you think that Steve Bannon has some substantive fact-based beliefs about the integrity of Brazil's elections? Do you think he has some facts that he knows that have made him concerned about how votes are counted in Sao Paulo? Really? Think he has important information about something being wrong with a voting machine in Santa Catarina or some other place in Brazil he's never been to that I'm probably mispronouncing? I mean, why do you think Steve, Steve Bannon cares? And that's an important question. Why, why does Steve Bannon or Trump care about what's going down in Brazil? While Brazil is an important partner to the U.S., their gripes actually don't have anything to do with democracy. They're on a mission to minimize the importance of elections. They believe Trump and Trumpy types shouldn't be contained by this inconvenience known as elections. Opposing candidates? Forget them. Their families? Mere distractions. It's something we've seen for the last few years in the U.S. 
go as hard as you want against the Democrats. More recently in Brazil, go as hard as you want against Lula supporters. Beat them up if you want to. Even in the name of God, which is just the height of ridiculousness. Trump has shown Republicans, and perhaps the world, there is no penalty, and possibly even a reward, from voters for spreading disinformation and violently tearing down your political opponents. It's why we see this lack of ideas or innovation from candidates. It's why we see such violence. The latest horror involved a breaking at the Speaker of the House's private home in California. A right-wing extremist looking for Speaker Nancy Pelosi brutally attacked her husband, Paul, with a hammer. He had to get surgery on his skull. This should be an easily condemnable act. There shouldn't be any thought about it. Apparently, it's not so easy. Trump is on conservative media amplifying conspiracy theories that it wasn't a break-in at all. But Trump, a longtime trafficker in conspiracy theories who propelled his political rise with the lie that President Obama was not even born in America, has never let facts get in his way. Arizona candidate Carrie Lake had this to say about the attack. It is not impossible to protect our kids at school. They act like it is. Nancy Pelosi, well, she's got protection when she's in D.C. Apparently her house doesn't have a lot of protection. What the is wrong with these people? They're preaching Jesus and traditional values on one hand, enraging violence on the other. But their verbal attack on Speaker Pelosi has been going on for years. Drumming up hate and demonizing Nancy Pelosi as a person. That was a cash cow for Republicans. By 2014, 13% of all Republican ads in House races mentioned Nancy Pelosi. In 2016, when Hillary Clinton became the main Republican villain, Pelosi was only in 9% of GOP House ads. But by 2018, with Clinton and Obama no longer in the spotlight, Nancy Pelosi was in a whopping 34% of Republican House ads. This year, Republicans have spent more money on ads that demonize Nancy Pelosi than they have spent on ads about immigration. The things Republicans have spent the most money attacking are taxes, Joe Biden, inflation, crime, and Nancy Pelosi. At the same time, in the past two years, five people, five of them, have been arrested for how seriously they have threatened Speaker Pelosi. Mr. Pelosi, who is 82, remains in intensive care with a fractured skull as of this recording. We have to do better, so much better. Midterms are notoriously a bust for incumbent parties, and while Democrats should be in a uniquely strong position, the polls have been unreliable, surprising, and above all, stressful. The stakes are very high, and the numbers are almost entirely up in the air. Races are tight. In Pennsylvania, Georgia, Ohio, Michigan, Nevada, Arizona, North Carolina, Texas, and even New York, where a congressional seat in a reliably blue district is in gridlock. While Donald Trump is not on the ballot this election, the Republican Party has been made over in his image. And there are Trumpian candidates the countrywide who are a very real and present danger to our democracy and our lives. Look, voting's not a fix-all. It's not even a, a one-and-done. It is a part of the work of building a country that works for its people. That work includes community activism and community building. It includes civil society and churches, schools and community centers. Every day, it is how you treat your neighbor. Building a country that works for its people requires so much more than voting, of course. But voting is absolutely essential. 
And while we may boo. Don't boo. Vote. Voting is where the magic happens. There's a saying in civic engagement, it isn't a margin of error, it's a margin of effort. This country is divided. The reality is that likely voters have made up their minds and cannot be swayed. The wins and losses are in the unlikely voters, which is a surprising amount of the adult population who are one heartfelt conversation with a friend or a relative away from biting the bullet and voting. Democracy is at stake. Bodily autonomy is at stake. The planet is at stake. I urge you to pick up the phone and check in with the not really interested in politics person in your life. Maybe it's your mom, your uncle, your cousin. Let them know how much it would mean to you if they voted. Here to break down the midterms with me is Roshni Nadugati, Chief Research Officer and Founding Partner of HIT Strategies, a firm of young, diverse, innovative social scientists that use research and data to understand and communicate with hard-to-reach and underrepresented voters. Like many of our listeners, Hit Strategies represents communities often misunderstood, overlooked, and underserved in American politics. Roshni has led expansive multi-phase research projects finding nuance in how Americans, particularly BIPOC individuals and low-propensity voters, conceptualize the biggest issues of the day, and time when division and partisanship run rampant. Her goal is to lift up the voices of marginalized communities in the United States, one of the fastest growing oft ignored voting blocks in American politics. Here we go. Roshni, thank you so much for coming on the Dell. I really, really appreciate it. How's it going? It's going well. Thank you so much for having me, Jalen. Yeah, you are so welcome. I really want to just jump right in here. I kind of like read the news every morning just to kind of, you know, start my day off on the the most positive light that I can. And (laughs) I saw this ad and it's playing in Georgia. It's by America First Legal. And um, Mm -hmm. can I play it for you? Please. This is the first time I've ever played something for someone on the podcast. Uh, So let's, let's see how this goes. When did racism against white people become okay? Joe Biden put white people last in line for COVID relief funds. Kamala Harris said disaster aid should go to non-white citizens first. Liberal politicians block access to medicine based on skin color. Progressive corporations, airlines, universities, all openly discriminate against white Americans. Racism is always wrong. The left's anti-white bigotry must stop. We are all entitled to equal treatment under law. America First Legal paid for this ad. Did you hear that? I did. And yeah. what a great way to start your morning. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. And, and a terrific way to start this interview. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't believe it. And we've had questions for this interview for a, a little bit now. And we had a production meeting uh, right before this. And I was like, guys, I just saw this ad. It's loco. Can we throw this into the questions? Roshni, what's going on here? It's the first time I ever heard any type of like formalized white grievance media mm-hmm. thing like this. And it's an ad and it's in Georgia. And we all know how close the races are there. Is this real? Is, is white grievance, is this a thing? What's, what's happening? You know, when I hear an ad like that, I just hear the Republicans absolutely grasp for straws in this election. They thought that they could win on uh, making Democrats the bad guys on the economy. 
And while the economy is still that great, it's bouncing back. And Biden and Democrats in Congress have been working really hard on a strong economic agenda. And then uh, when the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, it again put Republicans um, on the defense with the voters that they need to win over. And I, I, I just see this as their last kind of grasp at what can we throw at the wall to see what sticks. And, you know, what's interesting is they're not only um, playing this kind of anti-white racism, bigotry ad, but they've actually also, I think it's this actually the same pack, has sent a mailer out to um, likely AAPI voters as well in key battleground states that says that the Democrats are anti-white and anti-Asian. Um, in favor of Black and Latino uh, voters and people in the United States. So they're really just trying to kind of foment this division that they've been creating over the last few years and hope that, you know, it sticks with some voters enough to to turn them out. We had um, a person in the production team mention a ad that played in, I guess, a little bit ago uh, in North Carolina, it was uh, a very, um, I guess, racially charged, you know, minorities are taking your jobs, blah, 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 blah. Has this ever kind of popped up in modern American politics? This is the first ad I've, I've ever seen it, I've ever seen, and it really took me aback. Mm-hmm. And I was just curious, is this something that is kind of like new for us in, I guess, the 2000s at least? I don't think it's particularly anything new. I think that the way that they're framing it now is much more overt than they would have done pre-Trump. Okay. But Republican politics in the U.S. is essentially a zero-sum game. They, they want it to be a zero-sum game. If you allow black and brown people to get ahead, it means you're not getting ahead. Right. It's, it's contrary to the kind of more liberal view of, you know, a rising tide raises all boats. And so it's not a new sentiment, but they've definitely become much more emboldened in the language that they're using uh, post-Trump. It's wild to me. And um, mm-hmm. I, I, I don't know this, but I'm, I'm curious, do the majority of voters buy into this white grievance? No. No. Okay. Cool. There That's are, of course, yeah. There, are, of course, a, a, a portion of um, more conservative white voters who do buy into this. Um, but, but I think overall, most most people agree that um, you know black and brown communities have been at a disadvantage in this country, and we should work on raising everyone up and not. Um, playing this divisive game. And in fact, often when we ask people what is wrong with politics in America today, they'll say it's these lines of division that politicians Mm -hmm. and organizations are drawing and making it seem like neighbors are against neighbors when that's not what anyone's feeling and it's not what people want to feel. So I, I think ads like this will actually have the reverse effect on, you know, normal sane people and actually turn them away from the political process and turn them away from from the Republican Party 
uh, for saying things like this. And apparently they haven't done any research on how this will play. I mean, I imagine they have, you know, research groups and 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 folks who are kind of like listening and they're like, oh, okay, cool. This was effective. Let's roll with it. Maybe they're just like, mm-hmm. no, let's be destructive. Let's go. Let's let's just run it. Um, oy. That's crazy. Um, with candidates like Herschel Walker, we have, you know, the beauties like Greg Abbott, Dr. Oz. It just seems like we shouldn't even be needing, you know, to have like this conversation. Mm -hmm. These guys are just on their face, totally bad candidates. They don't have any policy prescriptions. They have, um, some of them don't even live in like the states they're running for. Greg Abbott, by all accounts, is a pretty huge failure in Texas. How are these races this tight? How, How is this happening? I think a lot of it is down to what people see in what people think is their most important issue to them when we're going into the upcoming elections. A lot of traditional midterm voters who tend to be older and whiter and more conservative are extremely concerned, first and foremost, about the economy. And in states like Texas, immigration. And they just feel like Republicans are more trustworthy or have a better handle on those issues, whether or not they actually do. I think we're seeing a little bit of sea change this year in that while midterm voters, like I said, tend to be older and more conservative, we're seeing a new group of younger Uh, younger people of color, younger women who don't traditionally participate in this midterm process, kind of coming out of the woodwork based on what they are seeing and hearing around the um, overturning of Roe v. Wade. And I think that some of those groups of voters are actually being discounted in the way Mm -hmm. that we're thinking about likely midterm voters and the way that we're thinking about some of the polls that have come out recently highlighting a likely voter universe that is overwhelmingly uh, white and older. And so while I completely agree with you that these candidates shouldn't have as much of a leg up as they do, I'm hopeful that it is not so much of a leg up uh, as as the polls are predicting. I, I hope not too. And we're seeing some of the the numbers that we're seeing of turnout for early voting it's matching or going beyond 2018, which was a huge mm-hmm. year for Democratic majorities, not just on a federal level, but state level too across the country. I'm nervous that the bulk of the folks who are coming out are they, you know, right leaning conservative Republicans. I, have you seen any data to kind of like break down who what's making up this? Um, this voter makeup of the early voting? Yeah, actually, what we've been seeing in in key swing states so far in terms of early voting is a much higher percentage of Democratic voters, modeled Democratic voters. We can't can't tell yet who they voted for, Um, but they're modeled to be more Democratic and they're modeled to be younger voters as well. So this, uh, we seem to be outpacing younger and democratic performance from 2018. But 
since 2018, it's, it's also good to keep in mind that um, early voting has become highly politicized. Democrats tend to early vote or vote by mail, um, and Republicans tend to vote on election day. So things are looking right. very good, but it's still hard to tell, um, and we'll only know on election day or after. Right. I want to talk a little bit about crime because Republicans somehow, some way, have been able to needle their Democratic opponents on crime, that Democrats are soft on crime, that they don't support their police, uh, their local police departments, that you know they want to release criminals into the streets and it's a madhouse and everything's crazy. And meanwhile, they had a, a great opportunity in Congress to increase funding uh, for local law enforcement that they all voted no on. And it passed mm-hmm. anyway, just because Democrats have the majorities. Then Democrats actually get hit hard on this. Have you seen any Democrats mm-hmm. kind of um, successfully tackle issues like crime? I think the Democrats who are successfully tackling these issues are not playing into the Republican narrative. They're kind of rejecting the premise that Democrats are anti-police and instead leading with solutions. Something that we know from our research at Hit Strategy is, is that if you were to ask voters whether they support defund the police, a majority would say no. But if you were to ask them if they support reallocating police resources into improving public safety, strengthening social services, and and just making overall public safety departments in their areas better, a majority say yes. And this is all people in the country, not just who you would expect your typical Democratic base to be. Uh And so these, these, these folks are really looking for someone to get up and say, public safety is so important. And we have seen an increase in crime. And we can tie that to some of the root causes of the pandemic and some of the poverty that has has come from that. And so it's important for us to address those root causes and come up with solutions that support our overtaxed police department. Unfortunately, this, this kind of nuance is really lost in a lot of political messaging. Right. And Republicans will hear that and say, no, they want to defund the police. And that is the soundbite that gets picked up. So it feels like we're fighting on two different playing fields right now. Mm. Um, but hopefully, as Democrats uh, are able to clarify their message and um, you know, be a little bit more coherent on our, on our, on our message moving forward, um, it won't be as confusing for voters. We did an episode with the LAPD a couple of seasons ago, and we were very gracious that they even granted us the interview. But we got onto the topic of defunding the police, and they were very animated about it, um, you know, completely against it. And it was like, oh, I mean, of course, I get it. You know, we're talking about, mm-hmm. you know, maybe eliminating your budgets. I get it. But we had the, the lieutenant walk me through a day of a police officer and she was mentioning they might be you know dealing with a car accident one moment they might be helping another person deliver a baby in another moment they might be responding to a mm-hmm. mental health crisis in another moment and i was just like a lot of these things don't sound like 
they weren't police. <laughs> and yeah. I think it's kind of like what you were talking to. Um, public safety does not necessarily mean police. Is that right? Yeah, that's, yes, that's exactly right. And, yeah. and if you ask voters or people in the country how they, who they want to respond to things like mental health crises, they say not the police. <laughs> and so they understand that there's a different way to go about this. We've just kind of the the argument and the um, the discourse right right now is really binary, and we have to move away from that binary. Right. What's the best way to mobilize and engage underrepresented voters? I think uh, the first step is really reaching out to these voters. We do a lot of um, polling and focus groups in in these underrepresented communities, and and something that we hear often is that. They just don't get the outreach from politicians until it's time to vote. And so they feel that, you know, politicians aren't actually there representing them. They just come around every election year and beg for their votes. So I think the first step is ensuring continual outreach, ensuring that voters know that when they go vote for politicians, the politician is doing something for them and their community in return. Yeah. And I think that will will create a really solid relationship, not only for politicians, but for politics and engagement in un- underrepresented communities that can help improve those communities themselves. Why aren't politicians going back to their communities and speaking to these, you know, kind of hard to reach underrepresented groups? It's a good question. And I think it's a, a tough lot of question. it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think a lot of it comes from the idea that it's difficult mm. or expensive. Yeah. It's, um, and, and so I think oftentimes some of these politicians feel like they can't reach out to these communities without fully understanding them or having, you know, extensive data on what they need. But it's it's not that difficult. People just want someone. It's who just shows kind of up. showing up. They just yes, exactly. So I, I think there's just a perception that it's either difficult or expensive, and so it, it's kind of a barrier to reaching out. There's been this noticeable shift in voting trends of uh, Black and Latino men towards conservative uh, conservative candidates. What's what's happening with that? I think it's the idea that black men and Latino men tend to be a little bit more conservative economically and, and conservative socially. And so they feel that, that, you know, the democratic party or a democratic candidates are often um, talking about issues that don't necessarily apply to them and their day-to-day lives. Um, But it's just, you know, not necessarily the case. And so I think it's incumbent on Democrats and Democratic candidates to really reach out to them and explain, no, here's what we've done over the last two years, four years, six years to improve economic conditions in this country to ensure that you are getting tax breaks for your small business or for your family. Talk about the child tax credit. Talk about all of the things the Democrats have done for those communities that they traditionally would um, ascribe to Republicans and Republican politicians. 
I've been out of the States for, I guess, uh, when was the last there? I guess a few months ago. And so I wasn't, I haven't been there during the heat of campaign season. Are there any just ads by maybe like the DCCC or the DNC just like listing things Democrats have done? Like, guys, we're we're just getting started. Let's go. Let's keep this going. Well, for us, I feel like a lot of Democrats, they have like this messaging problem and they don't, you know, they're 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 not like a, a self cheerleader for, you know, things that they're passing. Do you find that to be the case? Yeah, and I haven't I haven't seen any ads like that. Um which is kind at, of crazy, no? Terms, <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yes. I think candidates particularly want to be more future facing and want to talk about how we can work to improve this country and forget oftentimes that voters aren't as well informed on what's going right. on in Congress as right. they might yeah. think they are. And so to, to people who live in D.C., to people who pay attention to this stuff all the time, we know what's going on. We know all the bills that have passed and we know how they're really right. beneficial to people around the country, but people just aren't, people, regular people just aren't paying that much attention. Yeah. And I think that that's where some of that disconnect comes in. I think it's like a lost opportunity. Um, mm-hmm. you, the DNC, DCCC, all these Democratic groups, they raise so much money and they're running into, you know, do ads and things like that. And it's just like, just reintroduce yourself to America. Talk about the things that you've passed and in, in your time. And, and that's going to resonate with people. People will recognize that. People will be like, oh, yeah, my prescription bills did go down. Oh, yeah, that was a Democratic bill. Oh, I didn't even know that. You know, why, why don't we do that? Yeah, I think you're exactly right. And, and we've actually been testing this a lot in focus groups, especially among the group that we call surge voters. So mm. voters who tend to vote only on in presidential elections, but yeah. not necessarily in midterm elections. And, and you know, even just saying like, oh, we passed the Build Back Better bill, or we passed the IRA legislation through Congress. These voters are like, you know, the what? Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. What does that mean for what me? Is, what is that? Right. But when you, yeah. But when you break it down for them and tell them, all of the pieces of the legislation and all of the pieces that will have a direct impact on them and their lives. Uh, not, not even to mention talking about, you know, student loan debt relief, yeah. the, the um, uh, Biden passing the executive order on decriminalizing um, marijuana convictions. Like right. when, when these voters can see the direct tie between what's going on in Washington and themselves and their communities, they're so much more engaged and they're so much right. more likely to say that they want to go vote and support Democrats. Because it's, it's, it's silly kind of be, you hear these comments, Oh, they're all the same. <laughs> it doesn't matter mm-hmm. where you, whether you vote Democrat or Republican, they they don't do anything. It's, it's all the same. It's like, well, actually, you know, there has been a lot done and we just haven't had uh, folks who are, yelling from the rooftops this is what we've done um it's 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 crazy i mean when we had the former administration anything they passed it was like you know ground 
breaking news and we have to tell the world. And it was, you know, there it's, it's on the other side. So like a very uh, different um, perspective when it comes to um, telling folks what they're doing, what they've done. Um, Okay. Mm -hmm. I want to pivot a little bit. I want to become a little bit more hopeful. (laughs) Are are there some candidates that you're really excited about uh, this, this time around, uh, whether, you know, kind of in the DMV area or across the country? Yeah, well, I, uh, in transparency, I'm working with this campaign, but I'm very excited about Mandela Barnes in Wisconsin. Um, Okay. I mean, he's a very young, dynamic candidate running against Ron Johnson, who's been in the Senate now for 12 years and who is basically the opposite of everything that Mandela is. Yeah. And I think he's done a great job um, kind of bringing this grassroots groundswell level of support all around the state. So very excited to see um, what happens on his campaign. Uh, also yeah. for Stacey Abrams yeah. in Georgia, yeah. Raphael Warnock. Sherry Beasley and Val Demings in North Carolina and Florida, Beto in Georgia. There are just so many dynamic, compelling candidates this year in some of these key swing states that I think it's going to be a very interesting election night on Tuesday. And they're very inspiring. You know, you hear about Mm -hmm. their life stories. You hear kind of like their solutions to some of the, you know, the biggest problems that we have. And you're just like, wow. These, these people are great. These are great candidates. Uh, I, I love that. Um, and I, I think read, that they do yeah. a really good... Oh, sorry. No, no, no. Go for <laughs> it. I was just going to say, I think that they do a really good job of speaking directly to the voters and not over their heads and telling them why it's so important to vote and what voting for them would mean for these voters. So I think they're just really inspiring and very compelling candidates. We even had, I guess, President Obama in, uh, in Wisconsin uh, on the stump for Mandela Barnes. And he just kind of like eviscerated Ron Johnson. Uh, yeah. I'm, I'm sure you, you saw some clips of that. He was just incredible, just breaking down kind of like the contrast of where the country will go uh, with one candidate versus the other. Really, really incredible. I read from the Brookings Institute that uh, Justice Democrats and the Working Families Party, uh, along with other Bernie and, and squad endorsed candidates, won 50% of their primaries. And um, they're actually enjoying some success in, in this midterm season. Um, I feel like we don't hear a lot of that in the national conversation uh, about some of the progressive candidates that are, you know, that are winning. Um, their races. I'm thinking of Summer Lee in my district uh, back in Pittsburgh. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts on, on on this, you know, kind of like surge of progressive candidates? I think similarly to the candidates that we were just talking about, they're really compelling and dynamic and they represent something new and fresh and something that we've been hearing from from voters, young voters, voters of color for the last few years is that it's exactly what you said before. Both sides are the same. Politicians are all the same. Nothing, no no one who we vote for is going to change things for the better or for the worse in our communities. But when we have fresh new candidates with fresh new ideas, it really gets people excited. 
and it, and it gets them engaged with the process and they, they are more interested in learning more about the candidates and about yeah. politics and about what they're working on. And so more interested to go out and vote for them. And so I think these, um, these progressive candidates, I don't think any of them are coming out with, you know, crazy out there policy points or ideas. I think they're just talking about them in a way that's really connecting with some of these new generations of voters, young voters, voters of color that, that, you know, is, is getting them out, uh, turning them out at higher rates than they would have previously. Yeah. I want us to go into, this is like my favorite and I'm, I'm trying to be conscious of your time here and I want to wrap this up, but we're about to go into my favorite part of, um, um, these election, uh, season interviews, um, with your polling and research expertise. What do you think will be the biggest upset in the midterms? Let's, uh, let's, that I mean, is a uh, good I'm asking question. predictions. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, I am not in the business of predictions, which is, <laughs> I feel, a common misconception for pollsters. But, I, you know, we can tell you about broad demographic shifts or, yeah. uh, you know, sentiment changes, not necessarily about predictions. But I'm hopeful that, uh, you know, there was a lot of narrative early on this year. I'm thinking like January, February, that the Democrats were in for a real bloodbath. Yeah. And I think that everything that's happened in the months since then, including Biden's uh, approval rating, slowly inched back upwards to where it was, you know, pre this winter is indicating that it will not be as big of a bloodbath as people thought it was going to be. And in fact, with what we're seeing with some of these early voting rates, especially among young voters, we may be facing an electorate that looks a lot like our 2018 electorate, which would be great for Democrats around the country. And so I'm, I'm just hopeful Without making any predictions, stepping around the prediction <laughs> question, I'm just very hopeful that everything that we've seen is is leading to a positive outcome for for Democrats in the country. I, I you know what, I'm going to respect that. I was going to push harder, but no, I'll, I'll, I'll let you. I'll let you go. Uh, finally, what do voters need to know going into Tuesday? That is a great question. And uh-huh. I think what I voters need to know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think I think voters need to know what is on the line on Tuesday. It is our reproductive rights. If Republicans are able to take back the Senate, they have said multiple times that they want to pass a national abortion ban yeah. with no exceptions for rape or incest. Yeah. So it's that. Uh, with with Clarence Thomas's uh, concurrent ruling, it could be gay marriage on the line, interracial marriage on the line, voting rights are on the line. So it's not just as simple as the economy. It's you know reproductive justice, racial justice, um, the ability to to marry who you love, and and so I just think everything is at stake in this election, and it's not the time to sit home. Yeah. Perfect. I typically ask what makes you know our guests hopeful, but I think we kind of covered that. The, we are mm-hmm. seeing uh, numbers that are reminiscent of 2018. We're seeing candidates that are e- extraordinary, and and I, I'm 
just going to ask again, what makes you hopeful? I think one of the things that makes me especially hopeful is talking to young voters in the country, because even though they seem apathetic about the political process and about voting, they really care very mm. deeply about a yeah. lot of the issues that are that are happening around the country today and just need that push to get engaged and, and reminded of why politics matters. But once you're able to make that connection for them, they get it. And they're in there and they're ready to fight. They're ready to show up and protest. They're ready to go vote. They're ready to talk to all of their friends. And so that makes me really hopeful for what we can become if we're able to um, harness that kind of energy from young voters. Roshni, I thank you so much for your expertise, your insight, your hopefulness. It's rubbed off on me. I feel a little bit better after this conversation. (laughs) Thank you so much for coming on the Delve. I really, really, really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. Absolutely. Thank you for tuning in. I can't tell you enough how important it is for you to vote. And so I leave you with that. Vote. This is Chaylin. Thanks for listening to the Delve. I'll see you next Friday.